All right, please take your Bibles this morning, and we're going to begin in Exodus chapter 12. The children of Israel were living as slaves in the land of Egypt. They had sojourned into the land in the previous generation in the days when Joseph was the second in command in Egypt. The Lord had blessed him as such. As his kin, the children of Israel, the other children of Israel, had been treated with tremendous love and respect among the Egyptians. Until the Bible tells us, after Joseph's death, there arose a king who did not know Joseph, who did not love and respect Joseph's exploits, his wisdom, his sacrifices for the people, and the tremendous things that he did to save the nation of Egypt from famine, such as a common characteristic of human nature. We're very prone to forget. We're very prone to take for granted those things which are no longer uh, our burdens to bear the sacrifices of those who have gone before us. This is one of the reasons why our drive to lay up treasure in heaven is so important. Even the most impactful men and women in history will one day be forgotten in their accomplishments, either lost or undone. And even those who are preserved in our history books, should those history books last long enough, will see their legacies tarnished or modified to fit the revisionists who would desire to take their legacies and turn them toward their own advantage. So it is we lay up treasure in heaven because there neither moth nor rust doth corrupt and there thieves cannot break through and steal. There the legacies of our lives can remain and will remain as we live them unto the Lord. So this new Pharaoh arises and enslaves the children of Israel. They are placed under a very heavy burden, but as they are under this heavy burden, the Bible says they continued to grow in number. Indeed, the more the Egyptians persecuted them, it seems the more they grew in numbers to where they were a vast number of people. Indeed, they became large enough that the Egyptian Pharaoh began to fear that should there come a day when their enemies would rise up against them, that the Israelites, being such a, a large number of people, would join their enemies and would uh, be able to quickly overwhelm the nation of Egypt by sheer numbers. To this end, Pharaoh puts a policy in place that every male child of, born of, of the children of Israel should be killed. That when the child comes out, if they are a male, they are to be killed. If they are a female, they are to be allowed to continue, this would reduce the threat of insurrection, having a heavy female population. The Bible traces, however, a male child who was spared from such a fate through the faith of his mother and father and the faith of the midwives who uh, helped with the birth. And this child is not just saved, but he is found by Pharaoh's daughter floating down the river and adopted into the family of Pharaoh himself. Determined to raise him as her own, she names him Moses. Moses grows up in the house of Pharaoh. However, he also grows up under the tutelage of his parents by God's divine blessing. And he learns and understands from a very early age that he is not an Egyptian. And his heart, his loyalty does not rest among the Egyptian people. His heart is with his own people, the people of Israel. Moses 
tries to take matters into his own hands, recognizing he's in a position of power and influence. He attempts to lead the people uh, into freedom his own way. He kills an Egyptian. It does not work out as he plans. He has to flee to the land of Midian where he remains for 40 years until such time as God calls him to become the deliverer that Moses knew he had been but tried to do his own way. He is called by God to lead the children of Israel out of bondage and to become a nation under God. Moses appears before Pharaoh and demands in the name of the Lord that Pharaoh let his people go. Pharaoh does not fear God. He is not concerned over this demand. Why should he let the people go? So God proceeds through Moses to plague the land of Egypt. He sends upon them nine plagues. These plagues devastate the land of Egypt. They devastate Egypt economically. The food supplies are destroyed. Their wealth is, is destroyed. Their strength is destroyed. The crops, their gods are exposed as powerless. Their economy is in ruins. But it's not enough. Pharaoh would not let the people go. To this end, God said there's going to be one more plague, a tenth plague upon the nation of Egypt. And this is where we pick up in Exodus 12 this morning, beginning in verse 1. The Bible says this, The Lord spake unto Moses and Aaron in the land of Egypt, saying, This month shall be unto you the beginning of months. It shall be the first month of the year to you. Speak ye unto all the congregation of Israel, saying, In the tenth day of this month, they shall take to them every man a lamb, according to the house of their fathers, a lamb for an house. And if the household be too little for the lamb, let him and his neighbor next unto his house take it according to the number of the souls. Every man according to his eating shall make, shall make your account for the lamb. Your lamb shall be without blemish, a male of the first year. You shall take it out of, from the sheep or from the goats, and you shall keep it up until the 14th day of the same month, and the whole assembly of the congregation of Israel shall kill it in the evening. And they shall take the blood and strike it on the two side posts and on the upper door post of the houses wherein they shall eat. And they shall eat the flesh in that night, roast with fire and unleavened bread. And with bitter herbs they shall eat it. Eat not of it raw, nor sodden it all with water, but roast with fire, his head with his legs, and with the pertinence thereof. That meaning all the, the, the whole thing. And ye shall let nothing of it remain until morning. And that which remaineth of it until the morning ye shall burn with fire. And thus shall ye eat it with your loins girded, and your shoes on your feet, and your staff in your hand, and ye shall eat it in haste. It is the Lord's Passover, for I will pass through the land of Egypt this night and will smite all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both man and beast. And against all the gods of Egypt, I will execute judgment. I am the Lord. And the blood shall be to you for a token upon the houses where ye are. And when I see the blood, I will pass over you. And the plague shall not be upon you to destroy you when I smite the land of Egypt. The command of God is that each household of faith, each household of Israel that believed that God would indeed deliver His people, 
each household was commanded to take a lamb. And this lamb would be taken out of the fold and would be taken as a male who had no blemish, a young male of the first year. They would take this lamb on the 10th day of the month and they would bring that lamb into their house and they would keep that lamb in their house until the 14th day of the month. On the 14th day of the month, they were to kill that lamb and God commanded that they take the blood of that lamb and that they would put blood on the side post and on the top doorpost of their houses, of the house in which the family lived, of the house in which the family ate this meal. And then they were to cook the lamb. They were to roast it over the fire, not to boil it, not to eat it raw, but to cook it over the fire. And they were to eat the lamb within that house that night. Nothing of the lamb was to remain until the morning. And if anything was, was remained, if anything was not consumed, they were to burn it with fire. And God tells them, as you do this, be packed and ready to go. Because this night, I'm going to pass through the land of Egypt and I'm going to kill the firstborn of every, of, of every person and of every animal. And there will not be a household in which someone is not affected by this of those that have not put the blood on the, on the door. And as he continues, he teaches that this will be the, the straw that breaks the camel's back, that Egypt will not only let them go, but will beg them to leave when so many are dead in the land. This was a judgment of God upon the unbelieving. This was a judgment of God upon those who would not submit themselves to his word. This was a judgment, God said, upon the people who would not hearken to the voice of the Lord, but also upon the false gods to show just how weak, how powerless they were before the Lord. But then God tells them he would pass over any house that had the blood of the lamb on the door. The firstborn would not die for any house in any house where the blood of the lamb was on the door. When I see the blood, he said, I will pass over you. The plague shall not be upon you to destroy you. And indeed, as we consider this day, leading up to our rejoicing, our celebration of the resurrection next week, this is what we see. This plague was instituted throughout the land, the firstborn of every family condemned to die. But in the place of the firstborn could be a lamb, a lamb without blemish, having done nothing wrong, being killed in the place of that firstborn who was condemned to die. The blood of this lamb was necessary to save the life of this person. When God saw the blood of the lamb, he would pass over the house and the life of the firstborn would be spared. God then instituted this event as the first of an annual holiday, a yearly memorial of God's love and mercy toward the children of Israel. So we continue reading in verse 14 through 20. The Bible says, And this day shall be kept unto you for a memorial, and ye shall keep it a feast unto the Lord throughout your generations. Ye shall keep it a feast by an ordinance forever. Seven days shall ye eat unleavened bread. 
Even the first day ye shall put away the leaven out of your house, houses, for whosoever eateth leavened bread from the first day unto the seventh day, that soul shall be cut off from Israel. And in the first day there shall be an holy convocation, and in the seventh day there shall be an holy convocation to you. No manner of work shall be done in them, save that which every man must eat, that only may be done of you. And ye shall observe the feast of unleavened bread. For in this selfsame day have I brought your armies out of the land of Egypt. Therefore shall ye observe this day in your generations by an ordinance forever. In the first month, on the fourteenth day of the month at even, ye shall eat unleavened bread until the one and twentieth day of the month at even. Seven days shall there be no leaven found in your houses. For whosoever eateth that which is leavened, even that soul shall be cut off from the congregation of Israel, whether he be a stranger or born in the land. Ye shall eat nothing leavened. In all your habitations ye shall eat unleavened bread. So God instituted this feast at the end of the Passover. Passover was on the 14th day. From the 15th day to the 21st day would be this feast of unleavened bread where they were not to eat of any unleavened bread. They were not to have it in their households. And it was a perpetual holiday marked by this event. Leaven, as we know, is a fermenting agent, and it is uh, often used in the process of baking when one bakes bread to cause the bread to rise. What it's actually doing is the fermenting agent uh, causes bubbles in the bread, right, which causes the bread to expand and allows it to be lighter and fluffier. However, throughout the Bible, with one notable exception, leaven is pictured as a taint, as a corruption, a corrupting agent, corruption of that which is pure, taking that which is pure and making it impure. And so this was a physical manifestation of a spiritual concept that we are to be pure before the Lord. And I hope you see the symbolism here. We're going to make it more clear as we get toward the end of our message. The blood of the Lamb would usher in a time of consecration unto the Lord, that the blood of the Lamb would bring about a time of consecration the blood, then purity. Now, the picture of the innocent dying for the guilty is one that is not just seen in the Passover. It is seen in all of the sacrificial system of the Old Testament. On the first day of the seventh month, six months after the Passover, we see a holiday called Rosh Hashanah. And Rosh Hashanah is also called the Feast of Trumpets. On this day, the trumpets would sound and the people were called to prepare their souls for the tenth day of that month. And on the 10th day of that month would be a day that we call the Day of Atonement. The day between the 1st and the 10th day would be days of fasting, days of repentance, days of confession of sin, days of preparation for this Day of Atonement. On the 10th day of the month, the day which is now called Yom Kippur, a spotless lamb would be slain. And its blood would be sprinkled upon the mercy seat which sat above the Ark of the Covenant in the Tabernacle of God. On this day, the sins of the nation would be atoned for in order that the nation might continue to fulfill its elected purpose to be rightly related to God, that it might show the world how to be rightly related to God. Then we look at daily sacrifices, Sabbath sacrifices, uh, free will offerings, redemption offerings. In each case, we see the same principle. By and large, the death of an innocent lamb or an innocent uh, um, goat for the, the, the guilty. And this is not simply coincidence. It's not even just consistency. This is design. 
For many months, we've been looking at the big picture biblically in Sunday mornings, right? We've been looking at, at, at big picture stuff as it relates particularly to uh, uh, God's plan and then leading into the revelation of Jesus Christ. And with all of our big picture design considerations, we know that the climax of history is Jesus Christ himself. That the very climax of history is the death, the burial, the resurrection of Jesus. And that is what this next week is about. That as we prepare our hearts for Resurrection Sunday, as we consider the death of Jesus Christ on the cross, Jesus is the climax, the fulfillment. He is the point of the Old Testament. That everything that happened in the Old Testament, that all of the sacrifices and all of the offerings and all of the holidays are meant to point us to Jesus Christ. Mankind is born into this world lost, dead in his trespasses and sins. Let's not forget what we're doing here. Let's not forget the memorial of this week leading up to the reality of next Sunday. Let's not forget the foundation of the songs that we sang this morning about the cross. The foundation of the songs we sang, Alas, and did my Savior bleed, and did my Sovereign die. The idea that we are guilty and Christ was innocent. The idea that we are tainted and Christ was pure. The reality that we have fallen short and Christ never did. Let's not forget Romans 5, 6, where the scriptures tell us, for when we were yet without strength, in due time Christ died for the ungodly. This is what we're doing here. There was a time, for some it was decades ago, for some it was years ago, for some it was perhaps months ago. There was a time when you understood that you were without strength. There was a time where you knew that you were lost and you could not find yourself. There was a time where you understood that you were dead and you could not make yourself alive. When you, that you were a child of wrath and you had no power with which to satisfy the wrath of God that rested upon you. You realized that you were numbered among the ungodly. You recognized that you were a sinner and that sinners cannot have a relationship with a holy God. And you became aware of the desperate state of your soul for God, in need of God. And just as aware that nothing within you would be sufficient to satisfy the separation between you and God. Throughout history, Israel's history, lambs had sufficed as a temporary atonement, shedding the blood of the innocent animal to cover the sin of the guilty human. But the problem is, it only covered, it could not atone. Indeed, every year on the sixth month, on the tenth day of the month, they had to do the Day of Atonement all over again. Every year, a lamb had to be slain. Every year, a scapegoat was sent into the wilderness. Every year, the high priest went into the holiest of all because only he could and sprinkled the blood of the lamb on the mercy seat. Every year, this had to happen. And every year, the, the people of the nation of Israel spent the first day of the month to the tenth day of the month on their knees, repenting and seeking uh, uh, a mourning and, and, and seeking to prepare their hearts. And then the tenth day was the day of atonement. And then it just started all over again. 
start, start the record over again. Here we go again. Sin today, sin tomorrow, sin the next day. I need another day of atonement. Most likely, in Israel, the 11th day of every month was the day where the 10th day of the next year was essential. <laughs> and so we have a cycle of frustration. What about my sin? Can it actually be dealt with? Enter God's eternal plan to buy mankind back to himself through a lamb that was slain and his blood would be sprinkled upon the mercy seat once for all. So the Bible tells us in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 4 and 5, but God, who is rich in mercy, for his great love wherewith he loved us, even when we were dead in sins, hath quickened us together with Christ by grace ye are saved. Let's not forget what we're doing here. We are remembering the God who watched as, as mankind followed the lies of Satan and chose Satan above God in the garden. We are remembering the God who, in response to the rebellion of the pinnacle of his creation, chose to redeem rather than to destroy. We are remembering the God whose patience and long-suffering endured generation after generation of apathy, of ignorance, of false claims of his intentions. We're remembering the God who came in the likeness of sinful flesh, who in the appointed time, recognizing that there is no man who can redeem himself, much less redeem the rest of them, and so God took on flesh, became a man, lived the perfect life to die the sinful death in order that he might redeem us back to himself. And so God took on the likeness of sinful flesh, made of a woman, made under the law. For what purpose? Well, none of his own, but rather for us to redeem them that were under the law, Galatians chapter 4, verse 5 says, that we might receive the adoption of sons. So Peter tells us this in Peter, 1 Peter 1, verses 18 through 20. For as much as ye know that ye were not redeemed with corruptible things as silver and gold from your vain conversation received by tradition from your fathers, but with the precious blood of Christ as of a lamb without blemish, and without spot, who verily was foreordained before the foundation of the world, but was manifest in these last times. Notice these last two words. For you. For you. Jesus is the lamb that was slain. Jesus has become our Passover. Jesus' blood has been put on the doorpost. And if we will enter in through that door, when the Father sees the blood, He will pass over you. Jesus is the atoning Lamb whose blood was shed and whose blood was sprinkled on the mercy seat that there might be atonement for the sins of us. And this is something, believers, we should never get over. This is something that should never become old. This is something that should stand at the front of our minds moment by moment, that the breath 
that we take this moment and the breath that we take next moment is by the grace of God. And to whatever degree you find yourself living in the love and the joy and the peace and the patience and the goodness and the self-control that comes from the Spirit, it is only there as the fingerprints of God's mercy upon your life. It was for you. It was for me. And this is the time that we take out of every year from this week to next week to focus, to remember. What was for us? What happened on that day some 2,000 years ago to remember what Jesus did? So we find ourselves in Matthew chapter 27 where the Bible tells us this. Then the soldiers of the governor took Jesus into the common hall and gathered unto him the whole band of soldiers and they stripped him and put on him a scarlet robe and when they had plaited a crown of thorns they put it upon his head and a reed in his right hand and they bowed the knee before him and mocked him saying, Hail, King of the Jews and they spit upon him and took the reed and smote him on the head And after that they had mocked him, they took the robe off from him and put his own raiment on him and led him away to crucify him. And as they came out, they found a man of Cyrene, Simon by name. Him they compelled to bear his cross. And when they were come to a place called Golgotha, that is to say, a place of the skull, they gave him vinegar to drink mingled with gall. And when he had tasted thereof, he would not drink. And they crucified him and parted his garments, casting lots, that it might be fulfilled which was spoken by the prophet. They parted my garments among them, and upon my vesture did they cast lots. And sitting down, they watched him there and set up over his head his accusation. This is his accusation. This is Jesus, the King of the Jews. He was killed because he claimed to be a king. Then were there two thieves crucified with him, one on the right hand and another on the left. And they that passed by reviled him, wagging their heads and saying, Thou that destroyest the temple and buildest it in three days, save thyself. If thou be the Son of God, come down from the cross. Likewise also the chief priests mocking him with the scribes and elders said, He saved others himself he cannot save. If he be the king of Israel, let him now come down from the cross and we will believe him. He trusted in God. Let him deliver him now if he will have him. For he said, I am the son of God. The thieves also, which were crucified with him, cast the same in his teeth. Now from the sixth hour, there was darkness over all the land unto the ninth hour. And about the ninth hour, Jesus cried, with a loud voice saying, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani. That is to say, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? Some of them that stood there when they heard that said, this man calleth for Elias. And straightway one of them ran and took a sponge and filled it with vinegar and put, a reed, put it on a reed and gave him to drink. 
The rest said, let be, let us see whether Elias will come to save him. Jesus, when he had cried again with a loud voice, yielded up the ghost. We read that somewhat lengthy passage because I think there's value in reading through what Jesus did on that day. Beaten, torn, mocked and scorned. And remember those two words we read in 1 Peter, for you. Not for himself. This is the creator of all men hanging on that cross. This is the one who said in the Old Testament, if I had need of anything, I would not tell you. Hanging on that cross. The great I am being mocked by cruel men, being mocked by the high priest, being mocked by the soldiers, being mocked by the very men on either side of him being crucified. This is the mighty judge of all the earth who has stood accused falsely, but he opened not his mouth because he had to go to the cross, because he had to die, because if he had not died, you could not live. Amazing love, the song says. How can it be that thou, my God, shouldst die for me? Isaiah 53 tells us this, verses 4 through 7, Surely he hath borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we did esteem him stricken, smitten of God, and afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement of our peace was upon him, and with his stripes we are healed. All we, like sheep, have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way, and the Lord hath laid upon him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. He is brought, here it is again, as a lamb to the slaughter. And as a sheep before her shearers is dumb, so he opened not his mouth. Verse 10, yet it pleased the Lord to bruise him. He hath put him to grief when thou shalt make his soul an offering for sin. He shall see his seed he shall prolong his days and the pleasure of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. He shall see, the Father shall see the travail of his soul and shall be satisfied. Atonement shall be made. By his knowledge shall many righteous servants, or shall my righteous servant, excuse me, justify many for he shall bear their iniquities. Wonder of wonders that on that day as the father watched his son be beaten and scorned and smitten, wonder of wonders that on that day, as for the first time, as far as we know, in the history of history, the father and the son were separated from each other spiritually so that the son had to cry out, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? The only time, by the way, we find that phrase, my God, out of Jesus' mouth. What does Jesus regularly call him? My father. And yet the, the father-son relationship had been replaced in this moment with the judge 
relationship as the Father became the judge to pour out the sin of the world upon the Son. My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? Which would give way in just a few moments again to, Father, into thy hands commend my spirit. I commend my spirit. But at this moment, as Jesus bore the sin of mankind on the cross, the relationship became judicial. And in that moment, though his son was suffering, through the separation, wonder of wonders, the Lord was pleased. Not to see the death of his only begotten son, but rather to see the desire of himself to be reconciled unto you realized the only way possibly it could happen, which is through the death of his son. That day, Jesus purchased the justification of mankind. On that day, sin was satisfied. The payment was satisfied. Justification was purchased. On that day, he bore our iniquities. Don't forget what happened on that day. Don't forget while we're here, why we're here. We are the eternal beneficiaries of the sacrifice of Christ on that day. Don't forget that there's coming a day when we will stand before the Lord. And if you have accepted this gift, which Jesus purchased with his own blood, when God sees that blood, he will pass over you. And like on that day so many years ago when the angel of the Lord passed through the land of Egypt and all those who were under the blood, no matter creed, ethnicity, gender, all under the blood were passed over. The Passover had nothing to do with the worth of the people inside that house. It had nothing to do with their merit. It had nothing to do with their morality. It had nothing to do with their wealth. It had nothing to do with how hard they tried. It was for all who heard and believed the promise of God that when he saw the blood, he would pass over them. And if you had the faith to believe what the Lord had said, you were saved. And if you didn't have the faith to believe what the Lord had to say, then you were taking your chances and the firstborn died. All who had the faith to believe on the promise were saved from the death of the firstborn on that day. And in like manner, all who have the faith to put themselves under the blood of Christ are passed from death unto life, saved from a certain eternal death which we as humans have absolutely no strength to avoid on our own. Perhaps you're listening today and as you hear these words, you've never received the gift. You've not passed from death unto life. Perhaps as we consider today the joy and the release, the freedom from guilt and from sin, you rest yet in the clutches of that sin. You find yourself in the pit of that despair. You find yourself under that guilt. Well, we've talked about the problem that our sin has separated us from God. We've, we've talked about our weakness, that there's nothing that I can do to earn my way back to God because I've already sinned. I'm not the spotless lamb. I am not without blemish, and that's God's requirement. And we've talked about the solution, which is what Jesus has already done on the cross. So, Ephesians chapter 2, 8, and 9 says this. 
For by grace are you saved through faith, and that not of ourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. What is the gift of God? Grace. Grace is the gift of God, lest any man should boast. Effort cannot get us to God. Merit cannot get us to God. Work cannot get us to God. Associations cannot get us to God. But the gift of grace. What gift? Faith in what? We know well John 3.16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have everlasting life. The gift that we are to accept, the faith into which we are to stand is that Jesus is that Passover lamb. That Jesus is that atonement lamb. That when Jesus died, he paid for your sin. That Jesus, in paying for your sin, did for you what you cannot do for yourself. That you are separated from God and you can't earn your way to him. You can't work your way to him, but that if you will accept that Jesus has already done the work and you will invest your whole heart in the reality that Jesus Christ has done the work, that you will be saved. Now, next week, we'll talk about the second very important part to this, which is that he rose again. For as we talked about last week, I know we mentioned much of this last week as well, uh, when we talked about the gospel from Revelation, if Jesus is a dead savior, he's no good to us. Paul says, if in this life only we have hope in Christ, 1 Corinthians 15, we are of all men most miserable. But we're not miserable because we don't just have hope in Christ in this life. And if we will, with all of our hearts, with every, with, with, with every ounce of our expectation, put all of our eggs in the basket that says Jesus Christ is the only way to God, the Bible says, thou shalt be saved. So it is that we read the promise in John three thirty six: He that believeth on the Son hath everlasting life, and he that believeth not the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God abideth on him. Our lives are but a vapor. They are here for a moment and then they vanish away. We have no guarantees of the rest of today, much less a tomorrow. And if you've never accepted Jesus Christ as your Savior, young people, if you've never accepted Jesus Christ as your Savior, old people, if you've never accepted Jesus Christ as your Savior, don't allow anything to stop you from the decision to accept this gift. For many of us, however, this decision is made, and thank God for that. We are in church, and church is for those who have accepted Christ as their Savior. We come together to learn of Christ. The relevance of the cross does not end when you accept Jesus Christ as your Savior. The relevance really only just begins the day you accepted Jesus Christ as your Savior. And this is the importance of the fact that the Passover lamb, the day of Passover, gave way to the feast of unleavened bread. For some, it was many years ago that you accepted Christ as your Savior. And just as with the, na- na- the nation of Israel, the redemption of the Passover is not intended to just be a memory. 
We do not have a yearly keeping of the feast like they do in Israel. We are not under the law. We're not bound by those feasts. We recognize that, that and we, we don't live by that code today. But just because we don't observe the feast does not mean we ought not keep the feast. Pastor, what do you mean by that? Don't speak in riddles. Okay, I'll stop speaking in riddles. Jesus is the embodiment of the law. Jesus said he had come not to uh, abolish the law, but to fulfill the law. The Bible says that we are complete in Christ, that in Christ we have fulfilled the law. So how is it that we can get to God? We don't get to God uh, simply because uh, we, we believe something, but we get to God because when we believed something, when we placed our faith and trust in Jesus Christ, we were placed into Christ and Christ fulfilled the law, which means when God sees us, God sees Christ. And when God sees Christ, God sees righteousness. And so we, if you've accepted Jesus Christ as your Savior, are perfect as it pertains to God's law. We are right with God. We are justified. We are not bound by the law, because, not because the law has not been abolished, but we are not bound by the law because we are in Christ who fulfilled the law. Thus, we have fulfilled the law in Christ. But after the Passover came that feast of unleavened bread. After the reminder of the mercy of God in saving Israel from death on the day in Egypt came the reminder that they were to purify themselves from any taint or corruption. And this is the same call which rests upon us today. That as Jesus Christ has become our Passover so too we are to keep the feast, to be pure, to live lives free from leaven. Not physical leaven, such as in our food. You don't have to eat a leaven-free diet. But spiritual leaven, such as the darkness of this world. And Paul tells us this, gives us this analogy in 1 Corinthians 5. Paul is speaking to a church, correcting them for their wrongdoing. And he says this, your glorying is not good. Know ye not that a little leaven leaveneth the whole lump? Purge out therefore the old leaven that, leaven, that ye may be a new lump, as ye are unleavened. For even Christ our Passover is sacrificed for us. Therefore let us keep the feast, not with old leaven, neither with the leaven of malice and wickedness, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. Purge out the leaven. In this case, Paul was speaking of a particular man in the church who was walking contrary to sound doctrine. He said, this is leaven in your church. And he said, you need to purge out that leaven, but you also need to purge out the leaven that would make you want to have malice toward that man. Purge out the malice of him and his sin. Purge out the malice that you, or pull out, purge out the man who is sinning. Purge out the, the, the malice that you might have for his sin. And instead, eat the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. Live this way. Hold the world loosely Hold closely to the things that are to come. Live untainted by the world that is around you. How? Where does the power come from to do these things, to live this way? Well, that's next week's message. The resurrection and the life. We're one week out from that memorial of the resurrection. The memorial is only as good as the thing unto which it points. The memorial points to the most important thing in history. The death, burial, and resurrection of our Lord Jesus Christ. And the question today is this. 
Is Christ's death alive in you? By that, I don't mean that we are constantly reliving his death. The Bible says that he was once crucified. But by that, I mean, is the reality of Christ's death seen in the way you're living life? Paul said in Romans chapter 6, as he considered the grace which frees us from sin, what shall we say then? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? Should we live in the leaven of sin simply because we have already experienced the Passover? He has passed over us. Now should we not care about the leaven? Paul says, God forbid. How shall we that are dead to sin live any longer therein? Know ye not that so many of us as were baptized into Jesus Christ were baptized into his death? Therefore, we are buried with him by baptism unto death, that like as Christ was raised up from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we also should walk in newness of life. God did not save you to give you the opportunity to live in leaven. God did not save you so that you could do whatever you wanted without the fear of eternal consequences. God saved you so that you would be compelled to live for him. How are you doing this morning? That's this week. That's what we're doing here. That's, that's what this week is about. How are you doing? Are you living for him? Maybe you should take an inventory of yourself this week. Take an inventory of your choices. Take an inventory of your time. Take an inventory of these things for we who are in Christ and say, how am I doing? Where's the leaven? Christ is our Passover now let's keep the feast. Where's the leaven? Does the death of Jesus Christ color your existence? Does it reside in the very fiber of your beings? Do you live it and breathe it moment by moment? Pastor, that seems extreme. That's a pretty high price to pay, Pastor. You mean I have to devote my life to this? Well, um, what did it cost to redeem you? What was the price that was paid to get you here? What's the price of a life? What's the price of the life of the creator of the universe? What's the worth of the one who knew no sin bearing your sin? And all of a sudden, things fall into a new perspective. We mentioned Romans 12 already. I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your body as a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable unto God. Paul says, which is your reasonable service. Why would Paul say such a thing? Well, because when our Savior bore our sin even unto death, it seems quite reasonable that we would spend our life for him. Thank you for listening to Pastor Jamin Wickler from Legacy Baptist Church in Buffalo, Minnesota. More information about Legacy Baptist Church and a library of sermons are available at www.legacybaptistchurch.net.